0: I begin with an apology. I haven't been putting up any podcasts on the sermons now for a few weeks, so please forgive me. Uh, we have been looking at the big story parts five, six, and seven, which I hope in due time uh, to put up on podcast on the Facebook page of our church. And uh, today, I'm hoping to look at part five of the big story. And uh, what I'm hoping to look at today are three ups. But one of the ups is a real up, and two of the ups are actually downs. If you're confused, well, let's see. At the beginning of the year, I started a series of sermons on the big story of the Bible. That is the meta-narrative from Genesis through to Revelation. Thus far we've looked at the four major episodes in this story, creation, fall, God's gracious promises to Abraham, and Abraham's response of faith. And the last time we looked at the Exodus, when God brought his people out of slavery in Egypt under Moses. Just now I hope to look at part five, which covers the journey from Sinai to the promised land, which the Hebrews entered under the leadership of Joshua. The first point I'd like to make today is fed up minister was once asked by his brother how his congregation was faring. He responded, there are many people who are unwell. His brother was concerned and said, you must have a lot of trips to the hospital, to which he retorted, no one is in hospital actually. His brother couldn't figure this out, so he asked him, what condition then are many of your church members suffering from? With a wry smile he responded, half of them seemed to suffer from pneumonia. Moaning in the pews. Much of the content of the books of Numbers in Deuteronomy is a chronicle of Pumonia, the moaning and complaining of the people of God, who doubted and rebelled against God and his chosen leader Moses. They were fed up. Let me now outline the stages in their winter of discontent. First of all, at Sinai. Sometimes people wish the minister would descend the steps of the pulpit sooner rather than later. So just imagine how the Israelites felt when Moses lingered 40 days and nights atop Mount Sinai. The people got restless. They were fed up. Exodus chapter 32 and verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up! Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. This then led to the unthinkable act of betrayal and spiritual adultery. They couldn't see God or his representative Moses, so in their foolishness they decided to make a visible representation of a calf, mixing up the Hebrew monotheism with current polytheism. Yes, These are the same people who'd recently been spared the plagues, who'd been set free from Egyptian bondage, who'd crossed the Red Sea, who'd observed the Lord's miraculous provision and had been given the commandments prohibiting the worshipping of images, and yet here they are, bowing down before a golden calf. Are we any different? Am I any different? As the hymn says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Following the incident at Sinai, the Israelites were commanded to move on, led by a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. When it moved, they followed. When it stopped, so too did they. Just after the giving of the law and the construction of the tent of worship, the cloud lifted and the Israelites set off. But even at these initial stages, some of them started to grumble. Looking back nostalgically to Egypt, they waxed lyrical about the food and conditions in their former home. The people complained about the manna, which was the bread from heaven, and soon they would get fed up with the quail. Numbers chapter 11, verses four to nine. Now this rabble was among, now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving, and the people of Israel who wept again and said, "Oh, that we had meat to eat." We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic, but now our strength is dried up, and there's nothing at all but this manna to look at. Talk about being grateful. A short time later, the Israelites reached the border, the southern border of Canaan, and camped. Encamping at Kadesh Barnea, they had almost reached their destination, the Promised Land. So Moses sent 12 spies on an exploratory expedition into Canaan. They brought back positive reports about the fruitfulness of the land, but they also reported that people were powerful, that there were giants in the land, and that their cities were well fortified. Two of the spies, Caleb and Joshua, felt that the Israelites could enter Canaan and defeat the inhabitants with God's help. But the majority of the people rejected the idea, displaying an alarming lack of faith in God's power and rebelling against his leading. They were fed up facing big opponents like the dun in Egypt and at the Red Sea. Also, at Kadesh, Korah and a group of others challenged the leadership of Moses and suffered the consequences. Tragically, the Lord did not permit the Israelites to enter the promised land at this stage. The Israelites eventually moved on, arriving at the eastern border of the Promised Land in the area of Moab. Sadly, the Israelites were led astray and engaged once more in the idolatrous worship of Baal. They were fed up with the pure worship of the Lord. They felt that they needed to supplement the worship of the Lord with other religious rites and rituals. So by the time we reach the book of Deuteronomy, the Israelites have been almost 40 years in the desert. Sadly, it has been marked by moaning and rebelling against the Lord and his appointed leadership. They were disciplined quite severely at times, yet the Lord also showed mercy to them as Moses interceded for them. Tragically, the original generation of emancipated slaves, bar two men, never lived to see the promised land. The book of Deuteronomy contains three sermons by Moses on the border of the Promised Land, calling for renewed dedication and obedience to the Lord. And the closing chapters also record the election of Joshua as the successor of Moses, who will lead them into the Promised Land. What can we learn from these episodes? Are there parallels with the church in the 21st century? How do we respond to all that God has done for us in Christ? How do we respond to his Holy Word? and the leading of the Holy Spirit, with faith, gratitude, and humility? Or are we like the Israelites in the wilderness, missing out on God's best for us through unbelief, ingratitude, and pride? Psalm 95 exhorts us, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the wilderness. But amidst their litany of complaint, we also see glimpses of grace. So it is today. God operates in love and grace with us. We never get what we fully deserve, although sometimes he disciplines us so that we learn significant lessons. And just as Moses interceded for Israel, Jesus Christ, the greater Moses, intercedes for us in heaven. Let's throw ourselves on his mercy. The second point I wish to make is move up, Head up and move up. The next stage in the history of God's people is the crossing of a border. This border was the river Jordan. On the one side were the wilderness wanderings, on the other side the promised land. The book of Joshua is named after Moses' successor, Joshua, who led a new generation of God's people across the Jordan into the promised land. The only other person to enter Canaan from the original group that left Egypt was Caleb. This is the story of how the Israelites moved up to take the land. Overall, it's fairly positive. The book of Joshua falls into two main parts. Firstly, the conquest of the land of Canaan. Cross the Jordan, miraculously, on dry land, take Jericho, and then the rest of the book is a record of their conquest of other areas of Canaan. Secondly, we have a record of the assignment and settlement of the captured Territory of 12 tribal groupings. The book ends with a farewell address by Joshua. The book of Joshua is dominated by two big themes obedience and trust. God's people move up, they accomplish his purposes in the world when they listen to God's instructions, trust him, and obey him. In other words, when they do things his way in his strength, even if the challenges seem great. However, We also have the story of an attempt to take the small town of Ai just after Jericho. This attack was driven back. Why? It soon became clear that one of the Israelites, namely Achan, had sinned. His sin prevented the community from moving on up in God's plans. And only when his sin was dealt with could the people of God move on up. Hudson Taylor, the founder of the China Inland Mission, today known as OMF, once said, God's work done in God's way will never lack God's supply. The third and final up is truly a down. It's how the Israelites messed up. Although the Israelites under Joshua saw some measure of success in taking many cities and a lot of territory in Canaan, their conquest was incomplete. There were many Hostile tribes surrounding them, such as the Philistines and the Midianites. And so the book of Judges relates the hard times the Israelites experienced at their hands. Why did they keep falling victim? After Joshua died, there was a lack of leadership amongst the Israelites, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Judges 17 and 6. Each time the Israelites were oppressed by their enemies, they cried out to the Lord to rescue them and to spare them as a nation. Each time God responded by raising up a leader, a deliverer, known as a judge. There are 12 judges in total mentioned in this book. You'll know some of them, Deborah, Gideon, and Samson. They were flawed leaders, but God still used them. However, this cycle of sin, defeat, Crying out to God and being delivered continued until the time of the prophet Samuel and the beginning of the monarchy in Israel, which we'll look at next time. John Stuart Mill, regarded as the father of modern Western liberalism, wrote in the 19th century, over himself, over his own body and mind, the individual is sovereign. One writer considering the the 21st century has noted the current, and I quote, Culture of expressive individualism has become the moral wallpaper of the modern world. That's Jay Grant. The assumption is that true freedom is found as you exercise your individual sovereignty. In other words, you are your own king, you are your own queen. No one has a right to tell you how you should think, speak or behave. And when you exercise your own sovereignty, you have freedom. I guess in a political realm this is understandable but in the spiritual realm it is dangerous judges 17 and 6 in those days there was no king in Israel everyone did what was right in his own eyes and what tragic results ensued let me give you an alternative worldview an ancient tried and tested alternative a biblical worldview Each one of us has a choice to make. Will I be sovereign over myself, my own mind and body, or will I let my Creator be sovereign over me, my own mind and body? Will I seek autonomy from my Maker, or will I humbly submit to his greater love, wisdom and power? Will I be king or queen of my own life, or will I give Jesus Christ his rightful place, as my King and sovereign, as King of kings, King of love and Prince of peace? True freedom, I believe, is to be found in the latter choice, rather than the former. Having Christ on the throne, rather than myself, I dare you to test this for yourself. For then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Mm